Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado Magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado Magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today I'm here with Ryan Tansom. Ryan is the co-founder of, what is it? Ar- Ar- Arcona. Arcona. I didn't want to butcher that. <laughs> and the host of International Growth Podcast. Thank you for being on the show today. You bet. I love it, Ron. And it's intentional growth. It's all good. You're definitely not the first person I I, to do that. <laughs> it's like, I, I hey, actually like Mr. International. Like I, we'll, we'll take it. We actually had someone do that at my marketing corner. He's like, we're going to call you Pitbull now. I'm like, come on, man. <laughs> so intentional growth. And, and that's actually a, a, an important thing, right? Looking at something with intent. It makes it, it, uh, uh, I love the tagline because I mean, a lot of people, it's an afterthought. So let's just jump in with your origin story. Kind of how did you get started in this space? Just kind of tell us. Not being intentional. That's how I realized that the word is really damn important. Absolutely, Ron. My like exposure to business came from my dad. He was a hustler, still is a hustler. He started our family business in the early 90s. There's our house, bought $250,000 of used Panasonic copiers. And the rest is history, man. He had 30-day terms and sold them all and just kept going. So I worked in another business my whole life, man, like moving copies around, helping to move buildings. And then cold calling back when I was in high school, swore my grave. I'd never go work for him. Like a lot of second generation family families are. And then 09 hit financial crisis. The bottom of the margins and the equipment just disappeared. And at that point we're doing 21 million in revenue, 115 employees. And so I started full time and I was in a banking meeting with my dad in a CPA meeting and we'd lost like a little over 900 grand that year. And so we spent the next five and a half, six years turning the business around. So like I think I replaced and turned around about 60% of the employees by the time I was 25, sold a couple of branches for cash. And then we rolled out a new accounting and ERP system. I built out the managed IT service and the software automation, rebranded so we could go to head to head with all the other kind of business to business tech players. Got to this point where like, I was the executive vice president, so I was pretty much running the business, a lot of the operations, and my dad was in the visionary, so we kind of take team in the top part of the company. Kind of became my baby. Like It was just like my vision. I kept like, I really just enjoyed the people, where we were going, but what happened was my dad and I had this proverbial Groundhog Day conversation, which is he's selling. He was like, selling, not selling, selling, not selling, selling, not selling. I'm like, dude, I'm losing my mind as the one that's running the ship depending on whether we're selling or not, like is going to impact all of my decisions. So we got to this point, Ron, we're like, and now I can articulate this way better now than I could 10 years ago, but he wanted more distributions and more cash. Like he did not want to talk about copiers and he wanted to essentially just be an investor, just get the hell out. 
but I wanted to reinvest for growth. We had put millions of dollars back into the next strategy of the business, the managed IT. So that you have one stream of cash flow. You're either reinvesting, you're taking it out, and you have to be aligned with where you're going. So we didn't understand how to get aligned. So what ended up happening, we ended up getting to the point where we felt so trapped that we ended up, hell with it, let's just sell the business. So in, in 2014, we pinned the company up against a couple of handful of local competitors, sold it in 2014. Paid a lot of taxes, like 53.5%, and then paid off our debt, fired 60% of our employees. And I went, what the hell was that? <laughs> and I was, as I'm sitting in a cube next to an intern after running a $20 million business at the age of 27. And I'm like, all right, what did we just go through? And honestly, Ron, like your podcast, my podcast, all the things that are out there 10 years ago, none of this stuff was out there. Right. And I realized that a lot, a lot of entrepreneurs, I was in this stage, like a CEO peer group. So I was mm -hmm. like, most people are doing what my dad and I did, which is even though we had a $20 million business, we had a lifestyle business. We were sucking all the cash out of the company. So salaries, distributions, and perks versus saying, hey, if we reinvest this cash flow, it could grow an asset and grow the equity value of this thing. But we didn't know how that worked. We didn't know what we we're doing. So it was revenue, gross profit, checking account, revenue, gross profit, checking account, month to month to month. And then you just never get off that hamster wheel. So it's kind of this whole like shift in mindset that I had after we sold. That's very, very common. It's predominant throughout all the businesses I've seen, all the business owners I've known. And it's interesting. I refer to most entrepreneurs as accidental entrepreneurs, right? They never intended to start out and like create a business. They just, they made something, a widget or whatever. And one of their buddies said, I like one of those. So he made one for a buddy. And the next thing they know, another guy wanted one. And pretty soon mm -hmm. they're taking all their free time up and they start thinking, I'm making more money doing this. Or if I did, a, if I had a couple more hours, I'd make more money doing this than I would at my day job. Mm -hmm. And then they move into it. And there's no formal training, no accounting training. Nobody's ever told them what managing a company like an asset, a financial it's a, it's asset, a whatever. Job. It's even income, be, right? right? Yeah, you start with income. And by the way, I can absolutely validate the accidental nature of that because, Ron, for the first couple hundred of my podcast interviews, I oh. used to start as like, tell me why you became an entrepreneur. And I, I didn't try to. It was an accident. So I actually kept, I, I stopped asking because it was like, well, there's so few people that actually intentionally become an entrepreneur to grow the, a valuable asset. It's like, I found an opportunity. I wanted to disrupt an industry or I, I hated my job or my boss. I mean, it's the, the total e-myth for sure. I actually, my father told me I was too young to work for him. He owned a painting company. And when he went to work, I grabbed a push mower and tied it to the back of my bicycle and drug it five and a half miles. We lived in the country. The nearest little housing area was five and a half miles into town. I just drug it all the way into town and like bicycle broke. I threw it in the ditch where I could get it later and pushed it the rest of the way. I mowed lawns all day. And after, uh, it wasn't until he didn't even really kind of know I was doing this. He kind of did, I think, but he just didn't, it didn't click until I got bit by two pit bulls one day. And <laughs> the police called him and said, I'd been bit on the legs by these dogs and telling him what's going on. And he said, well, let me talk to my son. He's like, he goes, I couldn't stop him. He's over there mowing the lawn. As soon as I got the dog secured away from me, he said, I told this guy, guy's already paid me. He's already left. I'm going to go finish this lawn. And I was like, out there push mowing this lawn with bloody legs or these dogs that bit me pretty bad. After that, I, he was like, you don't have to do that anymore. Come work with me. If you're strong enough to do that and determined enough to do that, you can climb a ladder and hold a paintbrush. I was just saying, painting sounds a little bit safer than, uh, than that circumstance. And that wasn't even the first case. I was even younger, like fourth grade. We moved to the country in the fourth grade. I was mowing lawns with my older cousin and we got so, we landed so many accounts. My dad and my uh, cousin's dad, my uncle had to go out and help us finish them and they made a stop. So, uh, <laughs> that's but, awesome. 
some people are like, there's some people accidentally falling into some people. It's just your general nature, right? Figure out, I want X in order to get X. I got to go do some type of hustle. I got to go mow some lawns. I got to do something. Let's talk about like that shift you made. You actually went from, you came out of this exit and you started looking at ways to help other people. And I really like that uh, the whole thing on your website where it's view the, what does it say there? View and run your company like a financial asset, right? So it's kind of, what was that shift like? And kind of give us the high level of that. And we can start diving into what the, the actionable steps that people can take to start looking at it that way. The shift happened, Ron, is that after we, so after I quit, I lasted 60 days at the sellers, or I'm sorry, 60 days at the buyer's company. No real plan after I was like, I'm professionally unemployable. I'm not cut out for these meetings that I don't have any control over. And so I actually joined this gentleman. He had a wealth management firm. It was very, 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 very small. He was managing essentially one family's money. And I was like, I don't know, like, let's go. Like, sure. We now have some money. I never had a pot to piss in. And now my dad and I've got some money. Like someone's got to manage it. Might as well learn how to do this too. So for about 18 months, a very, very rough learning experience because I did not sign an operating agreement with him. I did not know the stuff that we're talking about. Went in there, helped him build a firm, major disagreements. And I, so there was a whole partnership dispute or lack of partnership because there was no partnership. But what I ended up doing is helping this uh, guy build his wealth management firm for 18 months, brought in like 20 million, 30 million bucks, something like that. But what the key part of that, Ron, is one is it was not for me. I was like, no, thanks. Like, I, I don't like personal wealth management, but where it clicked for me was, Cash flow. There's three financial statements for every business income statement, balance sheet, cash flow statement. And cash flow is tied to an asset that we all want that creates wealth. And I'm like, that company that we just had, like, that, like, what the hell? Like, this thing is an asset. It's not a lot of people. What I realized was just like my dad and I, it's like, you just kind of hope someone's going to sell it because you think of strategic reasons. You're like, oh, someone's going to want to eliminate a competitor, cross sell their markets, get the people. I always thought about the strategic reasons someone would want to buy a company. But then there's this whole world of private equity and all of these other investors that like they want cash flow and they want that cash flow to grow. So like after that we saw there's like the intersection of business and money happened for me. It was like, oh, like this thing is a business. I'm really good at, I mean, I turned the whole business around with my dad and we were like, we know how to run and operate companies well. If we did that with some financial discipline, with a financial goal, that could be even more beneficial for people. So I ended up like consulting for like five years, kind of flopping around and trying to kind of, I call it the 1.0 version where I created these five principles and I really want it. My passion, Ron, is I love teaching people how this stuff works because mm-hmm. I do not like to be told what to do. I'm willing to listen if I respect the person, if they've done, if they've got the credibility. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs are the same. And I was so sick of consultants back when I had the business, just sucking off the cash flow and sucking off our need to do things. And so like, I didn't want to be part of that. So I was like, Hey, I just want to teach people how to do this. So that way, like they can be control in in control of their destiny. Cause the control is a big thing. I think a lot of us want control, which is why we take this risk. So after consulting, that's where really dawned on me. Like there's so few people that really understand valuations and how to grow equity value to make it all worth it, Ryan. Like I know that I want to create wealth, enjoy work and make an impact, all those things. And that's what I know, notice a lot of other entrepreneurs want to do. And when you're not living in the intersection of all those, you could be making a lot of money, having a lot of fun. At some point, you're going to know, why am I doing this? What's the impact that I'm going to make? Or you could be making a big impact. You could be having a lot of fun. If you're not making enough money, you're going, I got to get rewarded for this. And so the whole goal is, the reward is like, 
why are you doing this? I mean, the amount of people that look at me and say, what's your goal? They're like, ah, 20 million in revenue. Who gives a shit? What if it's worth nothing? You're going to do all this for 10 years, invest all your time and energy and capital, and it could be worth nothing. Don't you want to know what creates value and how valuations work so that way you're paying attention to the right things? So that's really the underlying passion is I just love having, I love helping other people understand how to clarify that long-term goal and then how to get there. One of the things I see is there's a little bit of a myth. People see like software as a service companies and uh, let me think some like Shopify stores. There's a few out there that can trade on uh, multiples of revenue. So they'll hear a story about somebody getting two times, three times revenue. And they think, well, that's how this works. So my brick and mortar concrete company is going to get three times revenue. And it is not how this works, right? So I've actually had a call last week, I guess it was. Yeah, about last week. I said, hey, I'm thinking about selling my company. Here's what's going on. I was like, first of all, I'm not a broker or an advisor. I'm interested in buying it if it's the right kind of company. You start talking. I was like, what is it you're wanting to do? I need three and a half million dollars. And I was like, okay, well, cool. How did you come up with that number? That's two times my revenue. And I was like, oh, it's either that or my retirement number. And it's like, they have to be like me saying to you around like, hey, I want you to pay $2 million for my house. Well, let's say it's worth 700 grand. Why? Well, because that's my retirement number. Well, that has nothing to do with the value of your house. <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay. And you just... My first instinct, if I'm really interested in the company, the first thing I say, like, cool, let's see how I'm going to get you there. And it's not because I don't know enough about the details of their company. And a lot of times the how to get you there is like, look, you're going to need to go to work with an advisor and you're going to have to double your company because you're just not there yet. If you really need that number, like if it's a retirement number, there's a, there, you can get there. You probably can get there in two to three years, right? But it's not, it's not today. And there's a lot of stuff you got to do, right? There's a, yep. so. Well, going back to your cash flow comment, Ron, is that, Every business, and by the way, every country, city, government, and household, everything will eventually come down to cash flow. There's no way around it, man. Shopify or any of these companies, what's the trailing 12 months of EBITDA of Snapchat? Well, it's negative $600 million. Show me if I give you money, how is it going to come back in the form of cash flow? So like revenue multiples are just a proxy for cash flow. It's some sort of like way of someone saying, hey, this is how much cash flow to eventually generate. My old business and 20 million in revenue, it's usually two thirds, one third. So one third was equipment revenue that was new every year run. And then two thirds was reoccurring bank finance locked in facts. So our old industry prior to the last couple of years, that's been very wonky for a lot of other people as well. It used to trade on one times revenue of maintenance contracts. All they're doing is having a proxy for the EBITDA multiple equation. Because right. like, because like you wouldn't know unless like, so for example, in my old industry, I say, Hey Ron, what, what size company you have? And you're like, ah, oh, $10 million. I could go, well, 10 million. Well, it's going to be two thirds maintenance contracts and what. So it's about that. You can like do some back of the napkin math to say what kind of cash flow that could have. So I just wanted to make that note that yes, things trade on a multiple revenue. Someone's got to make money somewhere, right. somehow, some way, because the money's going to have to go back to people in pension funds who the teachers or the cops have to use the money to buy groceries and to pay their mortgage. So like, I just think that we've lost some stability. So we've lost grounding over the last 10 years on that concept. So you put a lot of thought in this. Let's kind of go through the process, right? So somebody comes to you there, maybe they think they want to sell. They don't know, realize they might want to sell now, but that they, really, they don't realize it's a couple of years out. What is the conversation look like that you're going to have with that potential business owner? I'll take some kind of just general scenarios. It usually starts with I get a phone call. And just before I get into this run, 
just to be clear, we're not investment bankers or brokers either. So we have a training, we have a training business and we have a fractional CFO business. That's it. But we always are helping people view and run their company like a financial asset. So there's a lot of tie into MA. We help people acquire if we're on the if we're, they have a CFO of ours or help them sell it if they're engaged with us. But we're not bankers or brokers. It's just the concept that matters. And why is because so let's start with how the conversation, like the sequence of events usually happens. It's usually like someone like you, Ryan, like Someone calls me up and says, all right, Ryan, I want out. I'm like, out of what? Your job or your asset? And at first, usually people look at me like, what do you mean? Well, you get a W-2 paycheck, whether it's guaranteed payments or it's payroll, to do something. That's a job. That's different than this asset that you have equity in. So I can, like, almost immediately, people have very little understanding of what is this company worth? What is the equity valuation? How is that separate from my job? We got to start. We got to start there. Then the next thing is, there's really three things everybody should be thinking about. One is what is the target equity valuation you want at a point in time in the future? We all, like I am completely convinced that if we have enough time, energy, and capital, there's nothing you can't do. As long as it's a good idea and you execute upon it, you have enough time, energy, and capital, you, whatever, you can create a unicorn, but it, it might take you 40 years, but like you start putting a constraint on it, Ron, and now we have our decisions and trade-offs. So if you said, I want a $10 million equity valued company in 2030, now we're going to have to figure out what is the revenue and the gross profit? Well, essentially, how are we going to fund that growth? How does that growth impact our salary, our taxes, and our potential available distributions? So the first question was, what is the target equity valuation you want in a point in time? The second question is, what is the annual income you want along the way through salaries and distributions? Because if you said, hey, I needed, I need a hundred grand in sal or a hundred grand in distributions on top of my 150 in salary, that's gonna limit the about, amount of money we can reinvest for growth. So you might have to push off your timeline or reduce the valuation. It's just pure logic. So again, first thing, target equity valuation at a point in time. Second one is the target annual income you want along the way, salaries and distributions. The third thing is what is the role? that you want in the operations as a job along the way as well. And it can evolve. It could go from engineer or chief marketing officer or whatever the heck it is. And you can say, hey, in year two, as we get to this big, then I wanna hire a CEO. Then I wanna move to the chairman of the board or what, like you can at least paint out the role, the equity and your income. Now you've got a framework run to like, make decisions and you say, okay, Hey, an executive, I met at a conference, badass. I can't wait to give them some equity. It's like, well, then your company needs to be bigger because your equity target run is 10 million in 2030. So the company needs to be bigger. So that's makes it worth it. So you have a framework to like make decisions that we all have every day. A lot of people don't realize that I want my revenue to, like you were talking about earlier, I want my revenue to be 10 million. Like, okay, great. How do you think that's impacting the company? What are your margins? Like, what are the profits? Like there are so many other things to come into play. And, it's like, uh, oh, let's give an example of that. Like, like we'll talk, going back to real estate, mm -hmm. if I put a bathroom on my roof, mm -hmm. if I spent 50 grand on a, putting a bathroom on my roof, would that make my house worth more money? If no one values it, who gives a shit? So again, right. if like, it, when you think about like reinvesting back in a company, Ron, like this is like, so I, I live in Minnesota. So like, let's say you had a, a million dollars in cash flow or, or EBITDA. So you have a million dollars, you pay 350 grand in taxes, you got 650 left over. You, let's say you take 250 out, the math correct? No, 150 out, you got 500 grand left. So you took 150 in distributions, you have a half a million dollars. Now you got your constraint. 
because you took your money out, you paid your taxes, they have a half million dollars. What are you going to do with it? People don't know. They just make shit up every day. It's like, well, we're going to do this marketing platform. We're going to do this accounting system. We're going to like launch this product and just kind of hoping that it's going to work out. And it's like no like way to synthesize like, hey, if I reinvest a half a million dollars, here's how I would love love to hear people say it, say it is, we're going to hire this executive. We're going to pay this, this recruiting fee, hire this executive. We're going to roll this out. It's going to de-risk the company because we're going to have more sustainable, predictable, and transferable cash flow. And therefore, there's going to be a higher multiple because we de-risk the cash flow. We reinvested the money for a return, but no one has the like the framework and they're just guessing. So like going back to the toilet on the roof, it's like, that's what people are doing. It's just like buying and doing random stuff. And it's like, well, how do you know if anybody values that? Wouldn't it be nice? And what people value is sustainable, predictable and transferable cash flow. Earlier, we were talking about the business owner and like, I want out. And you brought up a, a good point in your conversation. The first thing I always ask them is like, when you said you want out of your job or your asset, a lot of people don't realize that they love their asset they love the company like the people and everything else they just have got to a position where they hate what they do they're mm -hmm. burned out of what they're having to do every day it's like i learned a lesson inside of the real estate world is don't solve the problem until you have the deed right a lot of times when these guys get on the phone it's like look you really don't want to sell this business to me like we well, yeah, only do and burn out like, you, you love the business you love the people you hate what you're doing and you're running it wrong if you sell it to me you're gonna have to sell it to me at a discount or you're gonna have to fix these things and i promise you if yeah. I go and, and sell it to you and or stay with an earnout because they didn't run it. They didn't build it correctly. So you yeah. like, they didn't actually get out of what they wanted out of at all. <laughs> and the thing is like once we – if we went through the steps I'd want you to do during that earnout phase, at the end of it, you're going to resent me for because you're going to be back to doing what you love, right? Because that's what I want to do inside of the companies is like what are people really good at? What do they really love? And is there any overlap between them? Because sometimes there's no overlap. They really love to do something. They just don't have the freaking skills to get it done. And other mm -hmm. times there's good overlap, but they're doing, they're really good at X. They want to do X, but for some reason they're, the company's got them assigned to doing Y. And uh, well, and it be, being able to clearly articulate that is the first step, right? Right. Like, oh, there's a job that I get a paycheck for and oh, there's an asset. Now, what do I want with both? And like, Ron, there's a wonderful example I have with a client of ours. We're like, when you think about those three things that I was talking about, target equity valuation at a point in time, target income through salaries and distributions along the time, along the way, and then what's your role? So a lot of people can't immediately afford to hire a COO or a GM or president. Like that's everybody's, I shouldn't say that's everybody's. It's a high frequency like goal of a lot of people I talk to. I want to be able to be more passive. Okay, makes sense. Well, usually the constraint is people cannot afford their lifestyle with their income if they were to hire the $200,000 person. They're stuck. So the way to get out of that is to have your three financial statements tied together with a projection towards that equity goal. And you say, okay, in May, I'm going to get to a point where my cash flow, not my income statements, <laughs> but my actual cash flow from operating activities can afford 20 grand a month of distributions while hiring the $200,000 person. So that's why like your role, like being clear in your role and your income is huge with that target as a context. Cause then you can go, okay, in May or June, I can afford this person. I can elevate up to just distributions without impacting my lifestyle. And now I've got an asset that can continue to grow without my involvement. And I've had a client 
did just that, hired a president with a recruiter, and he's moving to freaking Hawaii next year. It sounds like a joke, but it's actually true. I mean, the guy, he's a, yeah, he's a fantastic human being. He bought the company. It's a manufacturing firm from his dad. He's a psychologist or he was a uh, psychology degree. And he's like, I just want to, I want to do other things. And he wants to have this asset without selling it. But there's like this plan to get out of that role first. There's a kind of a newer, I don't know how new it is. A lot of, there are people that have done it over the years, but there's a newer, it's resurging and it's this retiring out of your business, but owning it. You don't necessarily have to sell inside of this. I, I guess the reason I'm saying this is with what you guys do, I think it would be a great, if somebody wanted to do what I'm about to tell you, they, your, your company sounds like it would be perfect to do this, to help somebody get there, but to retire in place, meaning that they still own it. They step out, they become the chairman of the board. They do monthly vision, like, Hey, making sure everybody's still on track quarterly planning calls and stuff like that, but they're not in there on the day-to-day -day basis. I think that's available to more companies than the owners actually imagine. I think a lot of the owners don't see that as like a possibility. That's and why they call and say they want out because they're burnt out because they're so trapped in their own job. I mean, it could be a $2 million job or $20 million job like my dad and I had. I don't care what it is. You got all the personal guarantees. You feel like you need to be the CEO. Honestly, Ron, if my dad would have stepped aside in like year five and just been a salesperson, we could have had a $100 million company. But he thought he needed to be the CEO. It's like, dude, like... You got the attention span of a gnat. Like you are not a good leader. Like you go, you're a copier sales guy, go close deals. And so like, I think we, there's all these narratives that we tell ourselves around. And by the way, you want to buy companies and so do I like cash flow, man. That's why. Right. <laughs> it, it, it's so funny, Ryan. Like people are like, Hey, like, I got this out of the blue offer. call like 25 million bucks. Should you think I should take it? I'm like, you know what you're going to do? You're going to sell your company. You're going to pay a bunch of tax, pay off your debt. Let's say you walk away with, let's say it's 18 million out of the 25. You're going to spend the next 12 months trying to figure out what to do with it because we have high inflation, government bonds are junk, and you got all this shit. So you're going to have like a full-time job how to preserve your capital. And half of the time, people that sold companies who are dealing with that kind of wealth end up going and buy companies anyways. Because they're like, now that I get it, I don't have to be the CEO and I just want to collect the distributions and have the equity. And so it's just like this full circle. It's like, save your spare yourself some of the misery and be intentional with the decisions before you make a big decision. It's interesting is I know I have a friend right now who's in that same, that exact thing. He built something <laughs> up. It was, it was in the real estate space, but he was the CEO of it. He built something up. He sold it. I really don't know, like he, he actually participated in some stuff in the merger and acquisition space because he's looking for something else to do. And I was like, and he's never had a W-2 job. When the last call I had with him, he's like, kind of would like to go work for a private equity company or something. I've never had a W-2 job. I don't even know how to go go about doing it. I've never even had a resume, right? Do you, do you, there's a big lesson inside of there is you're a business. If you're out there, you're listening to this, you're thinking about selling your business. You're a business owner, not a wealth manager. And unless you've got a wealth manager plan, you're about to be handed a big tax check or you know, big tax liability and a bunch of money you don't know what to do with or how to do deal with it, right? I'm a real estate junkie. So if I get cash laying around, I go buy more houses and owner finance them out to people. The problem with that is right now I'm sitting in a stage where I, that's even scary because they're overpriced. We're about to have a big correction. It may not be sick. I'm not predicting anything. It might be sick. There's the real estate market's always been cyclical. It's going to have a correction. It's usually on about a... 12 to 15 year cycle, depending on who you ask. And we're about 12 to 14, I think we're about 14 years into the cycle, right? So there's going to be a correction and I don't want to be buying something fresh right now. <laughs> but 
that's still not even wealth management because everything's in one basket. So even with what I've got going on, it's it got to be diversified, man. And uh, there was a, I, I uh, interviewed Mike Michalowicz. I think that's how you pronounce it. I always mess it up. But from Profit First, and he was talking about he thought he had the Midas touch after he sold his company, and it was the touch of death. Like everything he touched was not a good investment. And it's I see that as a very common theme, man. Where people are like, "Oh, I built and grew and sold a successful company. I can do anything." It's like, well, copiers and IT service is way different than a software development firm that is doing water monitoring out of California. That's a startup. Right. Way different type of business. And there's different people, different things, and it's just it's a word of caution that like. Get your savings where it needs to be and then have some play money. But I think back to your old point, companies are assets. And if you're choosing to keep your company or sell it, right now you're the equity owner of that, whatever the equity actually is worth. Like understanding how it's valued and what you have the ability to do with it is important. That's kind of goes back to that tagline that we have is view and run your company like a financial asset. What do you want with financial assets? You want them to grow in value, right? When you when they grow in value, you want to have the options to sell them to people that want the want them at the fair price, yeah, and you want to make sure you mitigate taxes along the way. I like that because there's this whole exit planning industry. I'm like, I got certified like eight, seven, eight years ago or something like that. I'm like, okay, Ron, do let me ask you a question about this topic. Do private equity firms do exit planning? Uh, private equity when they're on there, I and it's not a trick question. I don't, I don't want to trick you. Everybody I've talked to, the private equity firms, they actually have an exit plan in, in place that I've talked to. The ones I've talked to have an exit plan in place when they're bought the damn thing. So private equity. Yeah, because it's an company, asset, right? They, <laughs> right? they know what they're like. They're buying this to do this. There's a, the, the intent yeah. purpose of. Yes, of, intentional, and, right? It's yeah. the same thing with you when you buy real estate, right? You yeah. buy the real estate at a price and you want to grow yeah. it. You're not like, quote unquote, doing exit planning. You're just yeah. an investor, right? Yeah. You're buying something and growing it and having the choices to monetize it when you want. I think that's the one of the big takeaways. And everything results in cash flow and cash flow get, results in an equity valuation. In the real estate world, I want to buy it at a discount, right? Then I want to sell it to someone. I want to clean it up, sell it at full price and earn interest on the whole valuation, right? That's the same thing inside of here. I want to buy something that at a cost that seems reasonable to me, that makes sense to it, that I see as a discount because I'm going to do X, Y, and Z and make it better. Mm -hmm. Every business buyer out there thinks they're going to fix something. That guy's been running it for 25 years, but you're going to change it. You're going to make it grow. I kind of laugh at that to some extent because it's not as easy as a, as a lot of people think. They, they <laughs> say it's going to be. That. Short of like what we do, like the fastest way to grow these things is just buy other companies and bolt them on. Like, as long as you can keep the people and do the integration side of it and understand the cultural matches. That's a thousand times harder than putting a deal together with some equity and debt though. Like I honestly, like I, I amen to what you said, but it's like, I talk to these PE firms and I'm like, they're like, oh yeah, let's roll up all these marketing companies or these, you know, home remodelers or home service companies. I'm like, no shake. Well, that's a genius idea. Like does like the 2000 other people have thought about that. Let's say you raise the money, which in the last 10 years has been very easy with 0% rates out there. And then they raise the money, you go buy the companies. And I know you've got experience in this. My business partner, they rolled up 18 companies in 20 months. Mm -hmm. Good luck integrating 18 accounting systems, 18 HR systems, 18 payroll systems, 18 CRMs. Like, oh my God. And you have human beings that have redundant positions, that have egos and have feelings. And like, 
So you put all the deal together and you had this beautiful spreadsheet with this straight line math. <laughs> if all of that goes well, you got yourself a monumental task. And what I've been watching, depending on the PE firm and the role, but it's like hot potato, the roll all this stuff up, multiple arbitrage and throw the pile of shit onto someone else. That's mm -hmm. it. Someone's going to have to clean it up and someone's going to have to realize the cash flow at some point. What's the guy that owns t uh, Tiny? Um, Andrew, I think, is his first name. That's kind of the model I like right now. He's bought companies. I think he's, they're worth, I think he's got enough companies. Now. He's hitting that billion dollar mark, right? Hmm. Tiny.com. You know who I'm talking about? Andrew. I uh, don't. Huh. He owns, um, I think he owns like Meta Labs. And, no, it's. Uh, but the, whole, the, the his concept, I mean, he, he does sell off some things, uh, but he his portfolio is crazy, right? If you look at what they own, like he was on a uh, podcast not too long ago, and he's like, well, we bought the local bakery, and it was because it's his favorite one in town. He doesn't want it to go. It, it's a good business. That's it makes awesome. money. So he buys it and puts it in, in his in holdings. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I think I like the concept of the, uh, the holding company. There's some things I'm looking to acquire right now to get the word out there. I'm also not opposed to buying things to fix them and sell them, but do the, the business flip. How mm -hmm. many of your customers are like, it sounds like the majority of your customers now are, they've owned it for a long time and they're trying to figure out what's next. Or do you have some acquisition some entrepreneur that are, customers? Yeah, I definitely have some acquisition entrepreneurs. I have a gentleman, he bought a sign company a couple handful of years ago from a baby boomer and his goal, the goal is to view and run the company like a financial asset to create right. wealth and not just pay attention to vanity metrics. So like, it doesn't matter. I mean, like Apple and Amazon have three financial statements and their valuations based on a, a multiple of EBITDA. Right. I know they trade on a multiple revenue depending on, but like everything will boil down to cash flow. So does the laundromat down the road. That's a couple hundred grand in revenue. So like everybody's got three financial statements. So like, it depends on how people want to create their wealth and what their intentions are. I'd say half of our people are people that want to like, I mean, they've shifted their mindset from listening to the podcast, going through our training and want to spend three to five years of intentional effort to get that equity growth that they want to have the choices that they want. Other people are like, Hey, I want to do this right from the start. What I see with some of those people, they become actually acquisition entrepreneurs themselves. You know what I mean? So they buy that first company and then it's like, Hey, once you get the platform going, you got your financials built, you got your strategy built, you got your strategy rolled in your financials, you get your key executive team like bolting on another company is not that difficult. Right. It is. I mean, the, I the integration, that, right? The people yeah. side of it, getting the people to stay motivated and not leave. I was talking to a company, a guy right now, that's all he does is the, the integration of people. He was on the show a few weeks ago. And uh, I came up with a brilliant idea and I'm thinking about hiring some software engineers to see if I can pull it off because I can't find it out there. And that's to, to baseline a, all, every employee you have on LinkedIn, any of the job board sites out there and glass, watch glass doors and stuff and watch as you do your announcement, right. Of the acquisition or exit and start really paying attention of leading indicators. Like how many huh. people updated their LinkedIn profile. Most people don't uh, update uh, their LinkedIn profile until they're ready to start looking around. That's awesome. Yeah, totally. Makes yeah, sense. If you knew that on average, you have a hundred employees on average, you get one or two LinkedIn updates a month because you're watching the profiles of all your customers, your employees. And all of a sudden you decide to, uh, hey, we're, we're getting acquired by XYZ Corp and 35% of your company updates the, re the resume. I would love to see the data on acquisitions, how many people immediately go update it. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's the third every time. Yeah, and you know- it Seems reasonable. The advanced side of that software tool would be start tracking like 
clusters. So if you ever watch, especially in the tech industry where I came from originally, when somebody, like when I left from one tech company to another, within about 12 months, a lot of my employees were working for me again because mm -hmm. I pulled them, I pulled them, right? Because I know they're good. I know what they do. They like working with me. A lot of times I, I got to ride the, the dot-com crash back in early 2000s. A lot of times we were leaving because we didn't have much of a choice, right? Like site.com blew up. I was the senior director of excite.com. And so when I left a couple of the guys there, they ended up going with me to the next place. Right. And then nice. Yeah. Yeah. Know, yeah. They, that place sold the Symantec and like, Hey, we sold Symantec. We don't want to work over here. Where are you working now? Right. Anti-spam company I was working for got bought by you know, Symantec. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there was just that. So if you could cluster that inside of there too. Who, who's worked for the same, your managers and your leaders, who's worked for them at two or three different companies. Well, can, it's what you, why people go look right away is because of uncertainty. Absolutely. I mean, this is why a clear goal and a clear plan on how to accomplish that goal that's reasonable and based in reality, you go talk to people about that, man. People are very receptive to it. You know what I mean? Like, I, it's just like, I don't know. I'm, I'm a visionary at heart, right? So like, I love finding that picture and then beating the, beating the drum of like, this is where we're going, being that cheerleader. And it's a little bit more of my default mode. The amount of people, if they just articulated their goal, target equity value, how are we going to get there? And then got other people on board, getting, acquiring a company. I mean, people are yearning and starving for leadership, man. Clear direction of someone they respect. I think if you like focused on some of those soft skills, then, I mean, again, you get the deal done, then you like, you can mitigate some of that exodus with just being a freaking human, man. I don't know. Right. It's all in communication. Everything, and I've said this before, and I'll say it a hundred million times, everything you have now, everything you want to have in the future, everything you've ever had in the past is a direct correlation to conversations you've either had, should mm -hmm. have had, or avoid having, right? Mm -hmm. So all your mm -hmm. success and failure, the, the difference between, and it's a horrible example because of his you know, last couple of years. Uh, <laughs> but the difference between me and like a real estate investor, like what Donald Trump was, was I was out there talking about to homeowners about buying houses. And he was out there talking about banks, about buying and building golf courses and skyscrapers, right? Both in real estate, just a different conversation, a different communication with different people. So it all boils down to the conversation, the communication. Mm, I get it. So one of the things I was looking on your website is one of the things I've noticed with a lot of business owners, and I'm kind of figuring out if you guys deal with some of this too, is a lot of times you start looking at these businesses and they've got the wrong butts in the wrong seats, uh, or they got the wrong butts in a seat any one way or the other. And it's just because, well, this guy did something to me for me 10 years ago and he saved the company 20 grand. And he hasn't done shit since then, but he's still here and I got loyalty to him and I'm going to keep him in place. And as far as running your business like an asset, you, you can't think like that, right? Mm -hmm. there, there are people in almost every company. There, you know, I find people in almost every company. There's usually one or two I refer to as poison pills. They hate being mm -hmm. there. They hate their job, but they just show up every day. And when they're around, nobody wants to work with them. The question I ask is like, as you're going through the process and stuff, is there any, you know, when you're looking at running this thing as an asset, do you guys look at the personnel side of it too? Like who's in these seats and what are they capable of accomplishing? Oh, it's crucial, man. Like it, I think I'll just kind of, the overview I give is like every business, it's like the same things have to happen every single time, Ryan. Like if, if we went and bought a business, whether you own a business right now, currently, or you're going to buy a business, think about it. Like if you're, if you are committed to keeping your company, you're essentially repurchasing it. You're deciding to keep investing in that asset. So the first thing that you and I would do, if we went and bought a garage or a company, we'd under, we'd know what it's worth because we would buy it. So we'd now have our point A. Mm -hmm. Right. So what's the buy price? Point A. Well, this is the order that I would approach every single business in. 
We now know what the price is worth. Well, guess what? I need to figure out what the hell's going on. So I would build the financials the way that we build them, which is the income statement, balance sheet, cash flow statement, tie those together, get the trailing 12 months to understand the history of where things have been. Sit down, build an annual budget from the ground up. So you start with sales. You go, okay, sales, what are the different product lines and the different, uh, different product lines and services that we're going to sell over the next 12 months? Separate them. Have your cost of goods structure tied to the revenue lines with the margins that you think you're going to hit in the months that you're going to hit, not divide by 12. Because if you're seasonal, you're not going to have any cash in May if all your shit comes in in December. So like build a 12-month budget. Then you tie your income statement. You have your finance team bill, the balance sheet, and the cash flow statement. So you tie those three together to see into the future your income, your gross profit, your EBITDA, your distributions, your taxes, and the future equity of the company. So I do that for the first year, put some basic basic assumptions from years two to five, tie that to an equity valuation that I want in five years. Buy the company, that's the framework. Otherwise, what the hell are we doing? So that's the framework. Then what we do is to say, how's our strategy? Build a good strategic plan, roll that strategic plan into the financials and know how much it's going to cost. Then you need a team. Who's going to implement that? Well, get the KPIs, get the team, let them execute like hell using like something like traction or EOS. Mm-hmm. Like, so the team is the people that are going to be doing it. And so the way that I, going back to your point, man, I mean, we had a business for 20 years. I could Jeff and Stan, and I could go through these people for 20 years. They were on our team and I was a soccer player growing up. Like just because your goalie saved a goal five years ago, <laughs> if we're losing right now, it's, I'm sorry, dude, I love you, but like. You suck. <laughs> Without being too facetious on this that round, is like I don't like conflict that much. I, I can always see the best in everybody, so that's that's a difficult thing for me. So I do that a little bit of self preservation. But what I would do is this plan that I just mentioned, and the KPIs that are based in truth and reality and where we want to go because we want to go there for a reason that is clearly articulated. I can sit down if it was you that I was having an issue with. Like we said, this is where we're going. Like whether you're a purchasing manager, or you're the sales director, or the CEO. There's a list of three to five KPIs that would be successful for your job. We tied it to the goal. We all talked about this and you're not doing it. Like, what are we supposed to do about this? So I put it on that person and I let them essentially hang themselves. So instead of it's, I, I hated the life of being in a world of subjectivity mm-hmm. where the CEO or lo- owner could just be like at their whim, if they're emotional that day, doesn't like someone. It's like, no, 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 no. That's the goal. Here are the numbers, here are the strategies, here are the KPIs, and this person's doing their job. So I really think the people are huge. So what's the plan? <clears throat> what's the goal? What's the plan to get to the goal? What are the KPIs, the tracking points of interest to, to tell you you're on track to get to the goal? And the thing I would do and I'm doing right now as I evaluate the, these companies is who do I need? Or the Kind of the job description of the people I would mm-hmm. need to get to make that occur. Like what skill set would the CFO need to do his role in this position. I don't care who's in there now. I'm not going to look at yeah, their resumes. Yeah. So skills that I have is like with the current goal, the plan to get to the goal, the KPIs that I have, who's done this before that would fit my model and what, what were their success traits. And then you take that job description and go, does that match who I have? Is it close enough? I can train him to get him there. Mm-hmm. Or do we have a real problem? Right. And I mean, it's a uh, sports team. Right? Like we have this, like companies are sport. This is my favorite sport, man. We're 48 minutes into this already. And I'm loving this conversation. Let's kind of dive into story time, man. This is my favorite time. 
tell us something about like tell a company tell me about a company that was your favorite maybe it's a turnaround story maybe it's just a full freaking cool project right one of the favorite things i said what's the weirdest thing you've ever worked on i had a company on here mm -hmm. so we built the giant unicorns that people can ride in new york the little spring unicorns we made oh, two yeah, of them yeah. for new york that are size big enough that you and i could get on what's the most interesting thing you could tell me about the client you've had oh man i think it goes back to that that guy i was telling you about who is moving to hawaii He's just done the hard work and he deserves the outcome that he has. Like, I just love that. I love the story. Like, in, for, like if, the more of those stories that I can help manufacture, the better. If, like, I was blind. I was just doing random stuff. Then I got clear on my goals and, like, did hard work against those goals. I know people where they were losing a significant amount of money over the last couple of years because of all the reasons we know. And willing to clear or clarify their target and then sit down and do the hard work to get there. It's so many people just think shit's going to fall in their lap. And it's just like, I don't know. Like there's this phrase that I like, I don't, I can't remember for the life of me. It's like two months ago. Happiness lies in the Delta between reality and expectations. I love this. Let's get that in line. So mm -hmm. I think your, your question is, I have a lot of stories. I know of people that, when they go through the training or they're working or honestly, or they just, they listen to my podcast or whatever it is. And they're like, Oh, like, and then they kind of have that light bulb moment. There was a gentleman also, he was like, dude, it's like seeing the matrix. It's like taking the red pill. I get it. So I think it's, I don't know, Ron, if there's any particular one, I'm trying to think there's, I mean, I got a lot of crazy horror stories. I got one. <laughs> that could be a whole episode itself. What's the stupidest things you've seen in the business from employees <laughs> doing? I got plenty of HR stories that may or may not be legally allowed <laughs> to be shared. Yeah. I, I used to do marketing coach as a girl, little marketing coach for Jay Conner, Levin, Jay Conner Levinson's team, the little marketing thing. You know, one of the, I'll give you a quick one for me. This guy calls me, says, I got to cut my marketing budget. I need money. I said, well, you, we're doing good, man. We're growing. Why do you want to cut it? And he's like, well, I need money for attorneys. I said, okay, uh, needing money for attorneys for what? Well, I'm getting a divorce. I said, divorce? Yeah, I just did the repeat, like the NLP thing. I repeated something, so he'd tell me the deeper story, right? I was like, divorce? Yeah, the wife figured out I'm cheating with the secretary. And I was like, okay, you don't need a marketing coach. You don't even need a business coach. You probably need a psychologist or some moral <laughs> moral guidance. Yeah, right, I, right. I'm not that guy. It's Every business has the same type of story. A lot of these... Uh, it's all based in, we're all based in people, man. We're all people. Businesses, it's all yeah, it's all people, man. Like you can look at a spreadsheet and it can it, like spread all, all the financials are is the story that's actually happening in the business. It's interesting that I was, a realization hit me while we were talking on that. I love that type of stuff when it happens. I don't do my own accounting because I'm horrible at it. I've taken enough. I've got enough college degrees. I've had to take enough accounting classes and know what it is, but I rarely even open my own QuickBooks. I'll take a look at it and I get my reports and stuff, but I'm not the guy that enters it. But you think about most of the business owners out there that, and I've tried to do it and it's just, my heart's not in it. That said, QuickBooks doesn't make that easy. And there, I don't think of it. There's a single thing where it says, well, you can log in and just like, I just want to log in every day and see my three statements without actually having to like click generate report and stuff. And there's no dashboard out there that's like all the accounting software should just plug into those. And I should be able to pull them up and see live at any given time. I don't think, I think it's over, overly complex. I think that somebody could go out there. Yeah, unnecessarily, yeah. Unnecessarily complex. I think yep. somebody could go out there and create a tool or a, an accounting mechanism for the mom and pop single operator type of companies that will do enough of the accounting to keep them out of trouble, but help them 
run it like an asset, like you're talking, help them always see those statements, help them understand what those statements are and put them in a way that they could do it on a day in and day out. Make some sense out of it. Make some sense out of it. Not intuitive. Like I've got, like I said, I tease around, so I got more college degrees than the average fool should have. And if I really wanted to figure it out, and I'm kind of half into right now, just because I'm evaluating company after company after company, and I'm tired of sending stuff over to the forensic CPA and go, why in the hell is this like this? This doesn't look right, right? Like, yeah, they just, you know, there's no clear cut that says X, Y. This is done by step one, two, and three. Everybody can do it slightly different. And it's not necessarily wrong how they did it, but it's just not how I've seen it the last 50 other times. So you're like, why did they put that there? Do you think there's actually a, a play out there to make something simpler? Like, a, oh, a they of- have it. Yeah, it's out there. And I, before I get into like what the solution potentially is, so like I was a copier sales rep. Right. Finance was my worst degree in college. I just want to constantly be saying that. Like, and you have more college degrees than me, Ron. <laughs> I didn't have a number two on that. And my point is, like, I've never met an entrepreneur that doesn't that isn't capable of telling one hell of a story. They've told, they can tell one heck of a story about where they've been, where they're going every single time. Then the follow-up question from any investor, any bank or anybody is going to be prove it. Mm -hmm. The way you prove it is in the numbers. The numbers are just the story of the business. It's the language of the business. Yes. There's a lot of jargon and acronyms and all that crap that's all over, but the whole story that you said, you just said like, why did they put that there? All of that, I don't even know what that story is that you're referring to, but I don't even have to because all I can think of is he's either talking about a revenue line or a cost of goods. Say, okay, why is that there? I don't know. Why did they buy that shit and put it there? I don't know. My point is every entrepreneur should be concerned of that the financials are reflecting the story of the business. So having your chart of accounts organized in a way that you could tell a story about it. Like I brought in a consulting company that has $10 million in revenue and their revenue line was one line that said consulting. What does that tell me? Absolutely nothing. Tells, tells me nothing. Oh, well, actually, well, we do audits and we do the interim CEO stuff. And we do this. Um, I didn't know that. Prove it. So my point is there's this like if you can't tell a story around your numbers, yep. you don't have to do the accounting. No one listening to this should do their accounting or their bookkeeping. You're going to pay someone to do it, but you have it set up right. And as long as your AP and your AR and the things are happening and their expenses and the revenues falling into the buckets that they should – then going to your talk, your play about the software. So it's called Giraffe. It's J-I-R-A-V, Giraffe. It's spelled Giraffe is what it looks like. Point is, it's an FP&A financial dashboard. You literally, it's an API connection to people's QuickBooks or Zero or whatever their accounting systems are. So our team is, so we have a, the training program. We have a, this offering where we're a value-added reseller of them and we have our CFO okay. services. So like, for a like ridiculously nominal fee, you can go in there. We have our templates, so we don't have to clean up everybody's books, but it's to the point where it's telling you the story that you want to be able to see. So I have a commercial cleaning client as a, a commercial cleaner as a client. She got her numbers into this. She's like, I finally can see for the first time what I've been feeling for 16 years. And that's what you're talking about, right? Like instead of looking at some crazy report, like one PDF of an income statement from QuickBooks, one PDF of a balance, you're like, what the hell does this mean? It doesn't mean anything. It's more about into the future, which is like predictive analytics of what is the output we want, where if I grow my revenue in these product or service lines by X, Mm -hmm. I have to hire these people, which is Y, and that's going to result in this much cash flow, which is Z. Is that a good thing for me? And what is the value of the company? Like, I'm convinced that every entrepreneur knows those questions to ask. They just want the right information or they're talking to a CPA that's never ran a business. And we're only talking about the end of the year tax planning, if they're even being proactive. 
We've covered a lot of topics and I've asked you a bunch of questions here. What should we be like? What am I missing? Just think about, just think about these questions. Those three questions that I was saying, target, target equity value at a point in time that you want. Mm-hmm. What is the target annual income you want through salaries and distributions on the way? And what does the role need to look like that you want on the way as well? Just think about it. And you're going to be in like the 2% of people that are starting to actually think about this stuff. How do people reach out to you? I want to make sure we know how people can tell them about your show, tell them about how to reach out to you and stuff too. Everything's the website, arcona.io, A-R-K-O-N-A.io. Shows out there, materials about our about our stuff. We got more content, <laughs> videos and, and links to the calendar or my LinkedIn or anything like that. So best place is the website for sure. Okay, cool. Myself or the audience could do anything for you. If we could help you in any shape or form, what would that be? What would you be your big ask? Check out the podcast. Hopefully I'm bringing value just like you are. And if people are experiencing that value, then they can share it with others. But yeah, intentional growth is on the website. It's also on all the major channels as well. Yeah, I put you on my my listening list and I listened to part of one on the last drive. So you're on my drive list anytime. I don't drive a whole lot now because I, I moved to a vacation resort area of California, but I drive nice. to the ocean over here and I'll download an episode. That's about 25 minutes. So I get to listen to chunks when I head nice. over to the, You're saying we were talking earlier about somebody else in this space and like, well, I'm not sitting at the ocean. I technically could, but this is California and, that, and it's cold. It's, it, this morning it was 48 at my house in the Redwood Forest, right? It's snowing I drove here, over man. To, it doesn't snow here very often. Um, I kind of live in a unique area where the ocean kind of keeps it cool, but never cold enough to snow. Cause I'm oh, right. Cool. I'm, I'm about 20, 20 minutes, about 15 miles right off the Pacific coast in California. I often take zoom calls with that in the background. They're like, how do you get your background to move? I'm like I turn off the voice isolation and they go, no, it's real. Those are real. That's birds awesome. Flying yeah, by, yeah, you know? yeah. I sat at a park bench uh, overlooking the ocean. I found a spot that like four bars of 5g right there, you know, right. At I the, love it. You know, I love it. Right off of a cliff. I appreciate having you on here today. I just wanted to make sure everybody knows how to get to, like, what's the big takeaway? Like, you already kind of covered this already, but let's listen to the show on, like, one big takeaway. Somebody listened to the show. Make it all worth it, man. Like, I told you the three things that you should think about, and then the overarching theme is view and run your company like a financial asset. Or if it's just going to be an annual income and it's a job, just admit it, then you can avoid all the flashy objects and all the random stuff that you would distract yourself with. We just all put so much damn work into being entrepreneurs, like make it worth it and create wealth, enjoy work, make an impact, make sure that you're doing, you're progressing towards that outcome of more choices instead of just spinning your wheels. So make it worth it. Well, hang on up for a second after the show. I do appreciate you having me. I want to appreciate it. I do appreciate having you on here. Thank you. I guess we'll call that a show then. Yeah, appreciate it, man. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show, ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline and leave us some information. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A to decision makers who are ready to buy. 
For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace, we have partnered with, has a proprietary database of 50,000-plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software-as-a-service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business, you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT exchangenet.com slash marketplace how to exit that link will be in the show notes visit them now the investors and entrepreneurs professional mastermind the investors and entrepreneurs professional mastermind combines the traditional peer-to-peer mastermind introduced first in napoleon's hill's famous book think and grow rich with accountability partnering where your peers help you ensure that you set goals, take actions, and get results. If you want to scale, blow past roadblocks, and achieve success faster than you might think is possible, I suggest you take a visit over to TIEPM.com. That's T-I-E-P-M.com and check out the Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind.